0: We're going to spend some time in the scriptures together now. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So we spend time every week studying the word and and learning from it. We're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, you can open it up to 2 Thessalonians. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs, and you can grab one of those and turn to page 989, page 989. 2 Thessalonians series, we've called it Stand Strong, and in this series, we've been Learning about what it means to persevere or to endure, what does it look like when life is hard, when difficulty hits us? what does it look like to continue to trust in Jesus, to continue to be faithful and to continue to walk with him? How can we stand strong by faith? Um, this week it's a, a difficult passage. Um, we're calling it don't panic don't panic so we're going to be in Second Thessalonians chapter two. Um, one of the things we do is as we commit to a book that we're studying, like 2 Thessalonians, then we just go in order. Uh, And so what that does is it keeps me from being a coward and just like chickening out on the hard passages. So this is one of those hard passages, if we weren't already committed to go through the book, I would have just said, forget it, I'm not teaching this one, it's too weird, okay? So one of those kinds of passages today. So we're calling it, Don't Panic, we'll be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, um, and I wanted to just kind of go back and think about a time in my past when I panicked when I was a kid. I could remember this particular time when I could feel panic uh, just waving over me. I could feel myself getting alarmed. I could feel myself being frightened. Um, I was staying in a weird place. I think that was part of it. My dad had remarried and had moved to Kentucky. Um, and so I was staying in this weird house in a weird place with the kind of a, a new stepmom you know, on the other side of the country. And so things were were not normal there. Now, the city itself, we were in Lexington, Kentucky. The city was really beautiful. I can remember first driving up, there were tall trees. And being from Central Texas, I'd never seen trees more than 10 feet tall before. So that was really beautiful. Um, And there were blackberry bushes in the backyard. And so it was a beautiful neighborhood, old historic house, and really pretty during the day. Um, But things were different at night, right? It was a little more creepy a little more scary being uh, up in this attic bedroom in the second story. And maybe it's because it was the Midwest, maybe it was because it was the 80s, I don't know, but there was no air conditioning up there. I don't know, is this how you all live in the Midwest? I don't understand. (laughs) So we use air conditioning here. I think that's the civilized way to do things. But there was no air conditioning in this upstairs room. Of course, the heat rises, right? So it's extra hot. It's old. It's like a creaky old wooden house. It was unfamiliar. Now, I was there with my sister. Uh, She was on one side of the room in a twin bed. I was on the other side of the room in another twin bed. And we did have an oscillating fan, right? So you could kind of wait for the fan to turn to your side of the room to get a little relief. But The problem was, I was eight years old. I was in a strange place already. I was already uncomfortable, and it was super hot. And I was also afraid that the boogeyman would get me, right? (laughs) And so, you know, if you're afraid the boogeyman is going to get you, you have to cover up with all the blankets, right? And so that just made me ten times hotter. So I'm sitting there just sweating, and I can't sleep, and that's making me more upset, so then I'm more afraid of the boogeyman. My sister, though, she's four years older, so she was a wise 11-year-old, 12-year-old, right? Um, So she's a wise 12-year-old, and she says, she realizes, sees me there, you know, sweating under the cover, she says, you know what, if you're afraid of the boogeyman you can just cover your feet and the boogeyman can't get you as long as your feet are covered. Did y'all know that? I had never heard that before and then I just carried that tradition with me. I don't think I actually uncovered my feet sleeping until I was like 30 years old, right? So I was like, all right, it seems to work and I just kept going with that. Um, And so that was how I figured out I could not panic in a scary situation. Now, I share that with you because it's a little silly, it lightens the mood and and we've got some scary stuff we're looking at in the passage today. We're in the passage today, talking about the ultimate boogeyman. Um, I was the youngest of three kids and so part of that is you watch inappropriate movies. I don't know if you've seen this happen in your families. You know, the younger kids, they just kind of go along with the older kids and they just told me to close my eyes, but then I'm like watching it, really? And there was this one super scary movie in the 70s called The Omen. You all heard of this one? The Omen, and then there was like Damien Omen Part 2, and then Damien Omen 3, and 4, and 5, and 6, and 7. And it was about this ultimate boogeyman that the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. or in our passage today, he's called the Man of Lawlessness. So as I'm laying there in the bed at night, sweating and afraid, I'm scared of the boogeyman, but I'm also kind of scared of this creepy Antichrist figure that is taught about in the Bible, that I saw the scary movie that I should never see, and you shouldn't go see it either, just to clarify. Don't, don't see the movie, but... Um, there is this scary figure that's taught about in the Bible who sets himself up as kind of like a false savior. So that's where the term antichrist comes from, right? He's against Jesus and everything that he stands for, but he steps in as some kind of um, fake messiah. Now, I just want to set the table. Christians throughout history have disagreed over the details, right? So I think it's safe to say that there's a general consensus that there is some evil figure, that sets himself up against Christ. And there is general consensus on this one for sure. Jesus is coming back and he's going to win. Okay? So I just want to assure you, I'm going to give away the punchline. Jesus wins. Okay? So don't panic. But let's read the text. Second Thessalonians. We're going to read chapter 2. It says 1 through 4 on the screen. It's actually going to be 1 through 12. So 2 Thessalonians verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers... Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed and the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So I said, these are are scary words. Uh, I'm going to pray uh, that God would help us, comfort us, and teach us what are the main things here. As I said, there's disagreement in different Christian traditions, so I'm, I'm praying and, and trying to aim towards what are, the, what are the big ideas, what are the main things that God would have us take away from this, so let's pray. God, we pray that you would help us this morning, that you would teach us from your word, that you would shape us so that we would not be a people of panic, but that we would be a people of peace, and so we pray that you would be with us now, that you would help us to get a glimpse of what you are up to, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So as we think about this call to not be alarmed, to not panic, to not be shaken by these false teachings that came in to the church, uh, Paul's going to lay out a few different alternatives to panic. Um, And one of the first things that he's going to say is that we should not panic, and this is kind of ironic, he's going to say, don't panic because things are actually going to get worse. And so I just want to throw that out there on the table. It's like, that's not exactly comforting, Paul, right? Like, don't panic things will get worse. And then the end will come. Now implied in the things will get worse is things will get worse before they get better. So things will get better. But we have to deal with this first part where he says things are going to get worse. And then Paul's going to reassure us and say, and God is sovereign. Don't panic because God is sovereign. God's in control. It's not like out of control, right? In the end, ultimately Jesus wins, as I said earlier. And then finally, don't panic, but instead love the truth. That's what he's going to really drive home at the end. Love the truth. Be a people of the truth. Don't be a people of the lies that are going to lure us in the midst of our panic, right? When things are crazy, our hearts are more susceptible to to lies, to leaving Jesus behind and going to alternatives. So don't panic because things are going to get worse. Don't panic because God is sovereign and don't panic, but instead love the truth. So the first thing we're going to look at is we should not panic. Things will get worse. Things will get worse. John 16, 33 puts the positive and the negative together this way. Jesus says that he prays that peace will be with his disciples and he says, in this trouble, or in this world, you will have trouble. So in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, Jesus says, I've overcome the world. So that's that, yeah, things are going to get bad. He's, he's telling the disciples that many times. And I have the, the sad job of getting to tell you that as well. Things are going to be hard in this world. Um, at any different point in time throughout Christian history, it looks different in different places, right? Um, right now, we live in kind of a messy middle where some weeks things are bad for Christians, some weeks things are great for Christians, right? We're in a weird time in history where we are with the Christian faith and its influence in society. There are other countries in the world right now where there's a great Christian revival taking place and Christians have great influence, great power, Um, it's all roses, everything's going really well in some places in the world right now for Christians. Other parts of the world, things are going much worse, incredible persecution, incredible tribulation and suffering and difficulty. Um, So throughout church history, um, we're often finding ourselves in different places, right? But there's a balance where Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. There's going to be good and bad. Things will get worse, and then ultimately Jesus is going to make all things right. So let's look at, again, verses 1 through 4. Let's look at these first few verses. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So that's the kind of panic concept there. Don't don't be shaken. Don't be alarmed. Don't be freaked out. Don't panic. And specifically, they were panicking, he says, by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So the particular panic, the worry was that the day of the Lord had already come. To some degree, they had already missed out. We don't understand all the details of this false teaching that had come into the church, but to some degree, there's this teaching that had already happened, and, and Paul is saying, it didn't come from me, right? So they had been listening. He says, he doesn't even know the specifics. Either some spirit, some prophecy, some word, some letter, something was told to them. This is from Paul, and he's saying, no, no, that's not true. He says later, you know, I already taught you these things. This has not already happened. And then he gives specifics. How do you know that the day of the Lord hasn't already come? Verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, I just want to start off and say there's a tension here because throughout the New Testament, we're taught to be ready at any moment for Jesus to return. So theologically, we call that doctrine... Eminence, the imminence, the, the kind of closeness, like, Jesus, can come back any time. And so I do believe we need to live that way, ready and expectant. But here, Paul seems to be giving a couple of things that need to happen. And so I'm just going to lay that out there. That's kind of difficult for Christians to wrestle with. And again, throughout Christian history, Christians have kind of divided that up or balanced that in different ways. I would say there's a tension here. Paul says, the end hasn't come yet because these things have to happen. And then throughout the New Testament, we're taught to just be ready for it to happen at any moment. So I think as we think about these things happening that he describes, a man of lawlessness, a rebellion, we should know that there are going to be things that will get worse before it gets better. So that's where I'm trying to just boil it down to to general principles here. We just have to know, again, as it says in John 16, we're going to have trouble. We're going to have hard times. And we don't need to panic about it. We just need to know, yeah, that's, that's part of it. Things will be difficult. Now, he's going to give some specifics. How, how will things be difficult? How will things get worse before the day of the Lord comes, before Jesus comes back? Well, he has some specifics here, and I just want to kind of define the three key words. We've got rebellion. We've got the man of lawlessness who's coming. So there's a coming rebellion. There's a man of lawlessness And then we've got this idea of the man of lawlessness actually setting himself up in the temple, and I want to define that at the end as well. So first of all, the rebellion in the man of lawlessness, what do those words mean? What is he talking about? Um, Rebellion can, in general, in the Greek, just be a political term, right? Just like how we would use it, you know, if you have a group of people that begin fighting the government or fighting a king or fighting an emperor, that would be a rebellion. In the New Testament, this word is always used, though, to talk about fighting the lordship of God over us. So it's the same conceptual word, right? It's just us rebelling against God instead of rebelling against a political leader. So that's the idea here, especially with the rest of the context about the temple and about faith. In context here, he's saying, there's gonna be a coming rebellion of the people of God against God. And so Paul's saying, there's gonna be some bad stuff that comes. People that call themselves followers of God will rebel against God before everything shakes out. And so we just need to know, okay, there's gonna be this coming rebellion. And throughout church history, again, we've seen ups and downs where things like this have taken place. Um, So the technical term for this rebellion is sometimes called apostasy. Have y'all heard that term before? Apostasy, sometimes it's uh, translated as like a falling away. So that's people that say they love God, saying, "I I don't love God anymore, or following some false leader. So that transitions us to the next term, this man of lawlessness. What does, that, what does that mean? Man of lawlessness, I already said, sometimes referred to in the Bible as the antichrist. So man of lawlessness, antichrist, right? This false savior that sets himself up against Christ as a, as a savior, but he's not really a savior. He, he actually wants to do evil. Um, and then the other term, and some translations is man of sin. Um, so man of sin, man of lawlessness are about the same. Antichrist, And then the third term is the beast. Have you ever heard of the beast from Revelation? right? So that's in Revelation 19 and 20. So you can kind of go, if you want to go study up and, and help me kind of build this out, next week you can come back and give me a report if you want to. Uh, Revelation 19 and 20. And then specifically the Antichrist is talked about in First John. So I want to quote that in First John to give us a feel. Because I think there's parallels to what we see here about this man of lawlessness. First John 2.18 says, Children, it is the last hour. So John is saying, it's, it's upon us. The New Testament generally teaches that we're in the last days and they started at the resurrection of Christ and they're still going on now. So that's part of what makes this all confusing, right? It's like these overlapping times. The last days have started, but we're not in heaven yet, right? And so that's where theologians get uh, divided over how to interpret these things. He says, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. So John says there is an antichrist that's coming, right? There is this ultimate scary boogeyman coming someday, but he says many have already come. So throughout church history a lot of people said Hitler was an antichrist. I'm saying, yeah, probably not the ultimate antichrist because the end hasn't come yet, right? So we still think there is some ultimate bad guy coming, but yeah Hitler was a type of antichrist for sure. People have talked about you know, presidents, people have talked about emperors, Caligula, Nero, you know, emperors of Rome, um, people like corrupt popes who did evil things you know, when they were leading the church. So we've had evil characters in positions of power that went against everything that Christ stood for. And so as John says, there've been many antichrists, yet there's still an ultimate antichrist to come. John says this in First um, John two twenty who is the liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So the spirit of Antichrist is to deny who God is and what Jesus has done for us, right? That's the spirit. That's the, the kind of realm of being Antichrist. Um, and so we've got these different cross-references. And then one more that I'll give you, again, if you're going to do the book report for me, is, is Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, specifically verses 29 through 36. But there's a lot of very specific um, geographical kind of predictions of war and stuff there in Daniel. And so when theologians try to slice and dice all of this, they're trying to, trying to put together all these different texts. And, and the way I would describe it, I was actually just talking to a friend in between the services. Um, you can think about it as like you take apart a fine Swiss watch and then you put it back together. And the watch kind of works, but you got a couple of parts left over, Right. <laughs> Um, everybody that has a view of the end times, that's basically what happens. You, you, you can bring together all your verses and you're like, this is my view of the end times, here's how it's all gonna go down, and then you've got like a couple of verses left over that don't really fit. Um, so we all struggle to really put it together, but I said this a few weeks ago, that the big idea is that Jesus wins, right? Jesus wins, you wanna be with Jesus, that's the big idea, and that's where we, that's where we find our hope. So here, Paul's saying, don't panic, things will get worse, before they get better, they, they will get better, and we look to that. So, uh, last thing to define is the temple. What is the temple? It says the Antichrist is going to set himself up in the temple. It's another place that theologians divide. Uh, the temple can be one of two things, I think, really. One is just the physical stone temple in Jerusalem, right? That would be the most concrete, literal way to translate that. Um, And then the other alternative way to translate that is the way the apostles do in the New Testament. They say the temple is now the people of God. We are the temple. So again, that's where it makes it hard to decipher these prophecies. We are the temple, and the temple is a real place in Jerusalem. Both are true. So so which way do you interpret these prophecies? And that's where I would just try to remain humble and say, "I'm, I'm just not really sure. Not really sure exactly what he means here. I tend to lean towards the the New Testament People of God Temple, that this will be a leader that kind of comes into the people of God. Somehow the Christian church, maybe a broader coalition of Christian churches, but leads a lot of Christians astray who rebel, who have apostasy fall away from following Jesus because they're now following some kind of fake Jesus, right? This man of lawlessness. But again, don't know exactly what this will look like. I just know things are gonna get bad, right? (laughs) Don't panic, things are gonna get really bad but it's gonna be okay, Jesus is gonna come back. Things will get bad, things will get worse before they get better. He says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we're waiting for him to come back. In John 14 he says, don't think I'm leaving you as orphans. I'm not leaving you as orphans, I'm giving you my spirit. I will be with you, I'm gonna go prepare a place for you, I'm gonna return, okay, so we have to trust him to return. So how do we live this out? What does it look like to not panic, and to trust that he's coming back. Jesus gives um, some parables that explain what it looks like to live in the waiting. And then he gives some parables that look like how we, should, um, how we should follow him while we're waiting, right? So I want to give you two sets of parables. One set of parables is in Matthew 13. And in Matthew 13, we have these agricultural parables where we have the idea of seeds being sown, and we have good and bad growing together, right? We have the parable of the sower, it's sometimes called, where we have different spiritual dynamics in people's lives. Some people are growing in their faith in Christ. Other people are rejecting it and they're not growing. And he's giving this parable to talk about the different spiritual effects of God's word in the world. So that's the, the time we live in right now. We live in this time where there's good and bad side by side. Another parable he gives in that same section in Matthew 13 is sometimes called the wheat and the tares. Have you ever heard that one before? The wheat and the tares? Um, Tares would be like bad crops, so you could say the vegetables and the weeds might be another way to say it, right? So you're growing a vegetable garden and you have some joker that comes in and sows dandelions and weeds in your vegetable garden, right? Jesus says what God, the ultimate gardener, is doing is he's being patient. And in this world, we've got good fruit and bad weeds growing side by side. So another way to think about this is, this is things will get worse, but things will also be good at the same time. There'll be people following Jesus and loving and serving others, and then there'll be other people turning away from Jesus and doing bad things. And so this, this kingdom age that we live in is the gospel has this effect of growing good fruit and side by side to that, there's, there's bad stuff happening. So what do we do? Like Jesus says, this is what it's gonna be like. There's gonna be good and bad, Things are gonna get bad, things are gonna be good, there's gonna be back and forth. How do we actually live? Well, Matthew 24 and 25 is towards the end of Matthew where Jesus talks about the end times. And it's really helpful because there he gives three parables that say this is what you should do, right? Because we're all going, man, I don't understand this. If if Dave doesn't even understand all this, what am I supposed to do? Well, he gives really clear instructions. He's really clear instructions in these three parables about the end times. The first parable he says, You should be like a good servant who is eager and waiting for his master to come back. And so is therefore being kind and serving the other servants. He says the wicked servant thinks the master's not coming back and he starts abusing the other servants. So that's the first thing he says we should do. Some days you're going to feel like Jesus is not coming back. A lot of days you might feel that way. You might think, I don't, I don't know if this is ever going to happen, right? We're 2018 years into this, or however many years it is, right? We're, we're waiting. He's not come back yet. Jesus says, it's going to feel that way. It's going to feel like a long delay. Be the good servant. Don't be the bad servant. The second parable he gives is the parable of the wedding virgins. And that one's really weird. But if you do all the, like, <laughs> cultural translation and stuff, what you get from that, the gist of it, is that we should be waiting for the, the center of the party to return so we can have the party, right? So the wedding party, they did weddings totally differently than us, so that's part of what makes it confusing. But the point of the parable is be ready for the party. Be ready for the party. Be ready to celebrate Jesus' return. Again, there's this idea of delay. Jesus is saying there's going to be a delay, and you're going to want to give up on the party. Don't give up on the party. The party is coming. He's coming back be ready to celebrate his return. The third parable is called the parable